Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with Hugh Guther, founder of Wonderland, Man About Town, Amazing and Roller Coaster. Plus, Scott Maslow, senior editor at The Week magazine and writer on a new book about the appeal of rom-coms. I mean, who doesn't love a romantic comedy, right? And finally, we head to Salone del Mobile too. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the founder of a roster of magazines, including the youthful Wonderland and men's fashion title Man About Town. Hugh Guther also founded Amazing and Roller Coaster. He tells me more about the titles and what's coming up in the newsstand. We started uh, with Wonderland magazine, which is probably our, our most well-known magazine. We launched that in 2005. The first issue came out in September. And it's four times a year. It's for both men and women. So we do a spring, summer, autumn, and winter issue. And the target age range is the, the, the core target reader is 16 to 30. So it's, it's quite useful. And it's a lot of celebrities, a lot of famous people, and a lot of fashion. And, and then I launched in 2007, we launched Man About Town, which is a biannual men's magazine. Uh, so twice a year. And I love Man About Town. I'm, I'm no longer the, the target reader for Wonderland because I'm 45 now. But I am, I consider myself the target reader for Man About Town. So I spend a lot of time working on that. And then we launched Roller Coaster in uh, 2010. It was originally a free magazine, but now it's it, it's not. And Roller Coaster, we do lots of different projects in there and try to keep it very different from Wonderland and Man About Town. And then we've just launched, last year, we launched a new magazine called Amazing, which is aimed at women over 30. So yeah, that's our newest title. And that, that again is biannual. It's a bit, it's just a, bit, a bit like the women's version of Man About Town, but it's, yeah, it's for and about amazing women. And talking actually about amazing, I love that cover with Camille Cotter as well. I mean, that was, that was quite a beautiful one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we had, we had Camille uh, for the launch issue. We also had Jennifer Connolly and Helena Christensen. And we're, we're actually just about to start launching the covers for issue two. They come out next week. And you, it's interesting. I mean, all your magazines, I mean, the, the incredible access that you have to all the, I mean, the top celebrities in the world. I I was reading the, I think, one of the latest Wonderland with Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz. I mean, what a fantastic and very fun photo shoot, I have to say as well. Is that perhaps a trust in the brand as well? Because you've been going on, you know, we're talking here for more than a decade as well. And I think the, the magazines are still very much going strong, right? Luckily, touch wood, I'm at a wooden table um <laughs> they are going from strength to strength uh wonderland particularly is is doing extremely well luckily i think it's because we we all work really hard on it and yes i think i think we now have a good relationship with uh, a lot of publicists and and they trust us most of them trust us i mean it's not always perfect with everyone but but most of them trust us to know what we're doing and to put together a, a great team i mean when we shot Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz, it was actually, originally it was just going to be Zoe. And she wanted to work with Ellen von Unworth, who we work with a lot and who's amazing. So, so it was just, Ellen was going to shoot Zoe. And then Robert actually very 
last minute decided he wanted to join the shoot because he had a, a day off. So he just joined like a couple of days before the shoot was going to happen because he and Zoe are actually real, really good friends in real life, you know, so so that that was nice to know. And Ellen really wanted to shoot them both. And 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 it was a great shoot. So I'm I'm very proud of that. No, I loved it. It was very playful. And, and there was a lovely interview and they were both chatting. It's interesting because it was quite revealing. It was quite personal, uh, perhaps even more than the other interviews I read uh, when they were promoting uh, uh, Batman as well. Uh, so, yeah, yes. that was a great one. It was just a, just a natural conversation between the two of them without, I think they did the interview without any of the publicist from from Warner Brothers the the movie company around so I think they were they felt free to talk and yeah it's a great read and you one thing uh, I like it but at the same time it makes me a little bit anxious because I want to get all the covers uh, I mean Man About Town I think Wonderland as well there's so many covers and especially Man About Town and you do those teasers there's this beautiful cover there's another one is this a good strategy for you guys because I have to say they're all amazing covers sometimes it's really hard to say oh, which one do I want to buy you know because uh, especially for the upcoming Man About Town I'm really I'm really curious to read that one well, I mean, the truth is every every celebrity and or more specifically every celebrity's publicist wants a cover. So if we only did one cover, we'd only have one celebrity in every issue. And, you know, the rest of the magazine would be models, I guess. So I just decided ages ago, I just decided, well, one celebrity is not enough for me. It's, it's not in, you know it's not going to sell enough magazines. I, I've always wanted to sell as many magazines as possible. You know, sales are really, really important for me. So I just decided we're going to do every celebrity we want. If they want to cover, that's what we're going to do. So we made a decision to do multiple covers and it works. We sell a lot more magazines because of it. Yeah, because some people want to buy two covers as well. I mean, and the things about, you know, let's move on perhaps to Man About Town now. What I like about it, there's always kind of a summery feeling and a little bit sexy, you know, which I, I don't know about you, Hugh, but I think there's no problem in having a little bit of beautiful color and, 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 and kind of the sexy and fun appeal as well, which sometimes I think it's missing on the newsstand. Yeah, I mean, Man About Town sells, I, I, I imagine it sells to a, well, to a lot of gay men, it's not just gay men, mm. a lot of women buy it, a lot of straight men buy it. But I think, you know, there's, yeah, totally, it's meant to, it's meant to be a combination of celebrity and I guess sexy guys wearing great clothes. And that seems to be a, a formula that works and that sells. So we're going to keep doing it. And uh, g give us a preview of the, of the summer editions for both uh, Wonderland and Man About Town, which I think they're coming to the newsstand quite soon, right? No, the 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 spring summer issue of Man About Town is out, and the the main cover of that is the Spanish actor Manu Rios, oh, I like uh, him. photographed by uh, Gianpaolo Scura, who is incredibly talented and amazing photographer and great to work with. He he shot I think three three stories for the latest issue of Man About Town, which was was great. Uh, so so that's Man About Town. That is available now. You can buy it now at, also from our website, which is manabouttown.tv. And then Wonderland Summer Issue is coming out in a couple of weeks. And so far, we've released the, the covers of Sadie Sink, who is an actress from Stranger Things. And the new season of Stranger Things just came out a week ago. So that was time to that. And she's, she's very popular. She's got 16 million Instagram followers. And we did four different covers of her. And, and the shoot is amazing. So I'm very happy with that. And then who were the other covers? We also did the musician... Jack Harlow for the latest Wonderland. So uh, he just had a new album. 
and there's there's a couple more surprises to come. Oh, fantastic. And that's why I love following the account. And as I said, I want to buy all the covers in the end. Uh, and Manu Rios, what a choice, because ah, I loved, I love his job at uh, what he did at Elite as well. I think it's quite a nice, nice, fun show as well to watch. Well, we, we actually did Manu for Wonderland last year and he's sold really, really well. He sold a lot of a lot of magazines for us. So uh, when it was Giampaolo who said he wanted to shoot him and I was like, yeah, that would be great because I know he sells a lot of magazines. So I knew the combination of Manu with, you know, photographed by Giampaolo. And actually it was also styled by Manu's stylist who is super talented. He's a guy called Mark Fournay. He's Spanish and he did an incredible job. And the, the shoot is, I think the shoot is like, again, 30 pages, like the, the Robert and Zoe shoot in Wonderland is 36 pages. It's the same, same kind of length. So you get, you get a lot of pictures. And are you a question about the market for, you know, Wonderland Man About Town? I mean, is it, uh, is the main market the UK or do you also sell, you know, to other countries, I don't know, the United States or somewhere in Europe? Uh, how we sell way work? more magazines in, in America than we do in the UK. We oh, sell really? a lot. That's yeah. interesting. So the US is our biggest market for magazine sales. We sell, you know, a lot of magazines uh, to America. We sell both, both on the newsstand in the US, but also a lot we sell through our, our online shop. So we have wonderlandshop.com where you can buy every issue of Wonderland. And then we have manaboutown.tv where you can buy manaboutown, rollercoaster.tv where you can buy rollercoaster. And then for the new amazing magazine we have, it's called theamazingmagazine.com. So we sell lots of magazines directly to consumers all over the world. And we, we send them to out to over, I think, 120 different countries. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, that's really, really, really interesting. And what other magazines do you like to read, by the way? Like any kind of, well, what's your reading time when you're not too busy with your very own magazines? I'm going to be honest, I don't read any other magazines. I've learned that if I read other magazines and if I look at other magazines, that starts to affect my decisions. So I only work on my own magazines. And obviously I have four and I don't really want to look at what anyone else is doing because it immediately starts affecting you know my decisions about who i put on the cover and and you know and even about photographers and everything else so whilst i respect what everyone else is doing i just don't like my i learned that i don't like my decisions being affected by what i see other people doing so i just i just avoid seeing it <laughs> and i don't follow any other magazines on instagram because i don't want to see what they're doing like close your eyes so it doesn't get interesting well, it, yeah it, my philosophy has always been mind your own business and i i mind my business and i just focus on that and i make decisions i make a lot of decisions based on what i watch on tv and what movies i watch and and music I listen to, and I make decisions about, you know, who's popular. And I, I do listen to my team. I have an amazing team of people that I work with, and I listen to their suggestions. But in general, I don't like my decision. I, I like to make decisions that I, I feel free and not influenced by another magazine, basically. It's good to follow your instincts. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, that, I always trust my gut instinct. I like I've, that. I've, I've learned over the 17 years of doing this that there's nothing more important than trusting your gut instinct. Thank you very much, Hugh. I'll go and grab my copy of Man About Town shortly. Might be difficult to choose which cover I want.
And you know, listeners, I do love a good rom-com, and I hate when people are sniffy about them. Scott Maslow, senior editor at The Week magazine, is also a fan of the genre and wrote a book about it. From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy. Such a great topic. He tells me all about it. It goes pretty far back for me. My very formative moment for me, my mom's favorite movie, is When Harry Met Sally. They actually, when they uh, when they had their anniversary, they did a little mock-up of the cover with my mom and dad as Harry and Sally, and I was pretty little <laughs> at the time. Uh, but that really stuck with me, and sure enough, that is, in fact, the first film that I cover in the book. Yes! Oh! 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 Oh, God! Oh! I'll have what she's having. And, you know, I think it's great that you wrote this book because, of course, romantic comedies have been popular uh, through decades and we're going to talk even about the resurgence as well. But some people can be quite sniffy about it, right? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think there's always been a little bit of a snobbishness about romantic comedies. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it's because it's one of the few film genres targeted at women, sometimes written and directed by women, certainly more often than other genres. I think you can really track kind of a direct correlation between the critical snobbishness about, oh, this is light, this is fun, this is a chick flick, and these movies that made a huge impact in Hollywood, you know, on a, from a business standpoint, on a creative standpoint, uh, were beloved by audiences. So I think it's overdue that they're getting a little more critical attention and praise, and I, I think we're headed towards that era now. Well, I think it's overdue as well. And to make this book, it must have been so much fun for you because you speak to a lot of people involved in romantic comedies, you know, from Drew Barrymore to Judy Greer. I, I heard you're a big fan and I am as well. I mean, what would be romantic comedies without her, right? Yeah, that was one of my favorites because I love that archetype of the best friend in rom-coms. Yes. <laughs> it's so much fun. And if anyone has done it, you know, better than anyone in the history of Hollywood as far as I'm concerned. And she was... She was such a delightful interview because she had so much technical information about, you know, if if a, a soda company sponsors a movie, she had to be the one to hold the soda can facing the camera, but also deliver her dialogue. <laughs> when you're not the star, you have these kind of thankless jobs that are also really interesting. But um, but I think part of the reason she keeps getting those roles is because she does it so well. She can take this dialogue that's just exposition. You know, it's, your brother is in Colorado, and she somehow makes it feel fun and real. It's really fun to talk to someone like that who's been on that side of the job. It's interesting you mentioned at the beginning that you, I think your first experience more or less was when Harry met Sally. I think mine was uh, Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding, which I still think it's one of the greatest romantic comedies. And, and I'm glad it has its own chapter in your book as well. It's an absolute favorite of mine, honestly. I was, love it. <laughs> you know, when I was making the list of movies to go in the book, it, it was really hard to whittle it down. I looked at, you know, 70 or 80 movies that I might want to cover before I finally was able to come to 16. Um, but that was one where when I revisited, it was like, I remembered that I liked this movie and it is better than I remembered. It is really smart. It's very risky for the time for Julia Roberts to take on a role where she doesn't get the guy, where with Cameron Diaz in there, she's kind of inviting her box office rival to steal a guy from her in a rom-com. It's, it's a really bold movie and I think brilliantly executed. Well. We're getting married. He was in love with me every day for nine years. Me? <laughs> I can see why. Look, she has known him for what, like five seconds? I can't lose him, George. I'm a busy girl. I've got four days to break up a wedding and steal the bride's feather. Oh! <laughs> You know, I've never had a sister. All I've heard is, is Julianne this and Julianne that. Michael and I were a wrong fit right from the start. He said that too. You know, I want to talk about the resurgence, but why do you think there's been a little 
decline? I mean, of course, I think you investigate that a little bit in the book. But tell us, uh, I think that the 2000s were a bit kind of, you know, there's been a few films here and there, but it was definitely not what it was in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think a few things were happening at the same time. I think the most important part of it is that the Hollywood business itself was changing a little bit at the time. It's not so much to me the decline of romantic comedies as it's the decline of mid-budget movies where Hollywood kind of switched to a business model where everything was either like a $300 million Spider-Man movie or a $10 million movie that might win Best Picture and it's this really dark drama. And they just kind of lost room in the middle to make movies like rom-coms that have often been ignored critically and other than their exceptions like Four Weddings and a Funeral or Silver Linings Playbook, but those tend to be the ones that are a little more serious and that center a white male perspective. The rom-coms that are more traditional that we think of that center a female perspective rarely get that kind of awards attention. And so I think rom-coms were sort of uniquely devalued by changes in the business model where it was like, well, we're not going to get awards from it, but we don't know if people are going to go to movie theaters at least to make a billion dollars to see it. And I think that caused problems. And at the same time, I think there was a bit of a decline in quality. Mm -hmm. Like any film genre, part of what happened was they started to want to one-up themselves a little bit. You know, oh, this rom-com did this, so we need to go even crazier. And and when stars started to sort of back away from doing the genre, you know, as, as people like Julia Roberts and Meg Ryan looked in other directions and other stars, people like Emma Stone and Jennifer Lawrence made romantic comedies, but they, they didn't just make romantic comedies. They also made action movies or dramas or superhero movies. And so... I think all of those things came together to kind of hurt the genre at the time. Do you see like today, you know, we've seen more slightly recent films like Crazy Rich Asians. You know, there's Fire Island as well, which just came out. I think I can say it's a romantic comedy, right? Definitely. Do you think this kind of uh, the diversity uh, thing is quite a good thing as well for romantic comedies? Because that's something that was definitely missing at the time. And I think that's how romantic comedies can progress in, in the next years to come, to be diverse and to have better scripts as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think part of the reason that the genre lost touch with people, like, like all of Hollywood, really, it's, mm. you know, unfortunately, it's no secret that, you know, we're, we're in an era of Hollywood where things have been very monolithic for a long time. And a lot of the great rom-coms that I love that I cover in the book are centered on rich white people. They just are. Uh, that's, that's how Hollywood worked. It was people, people greenlighting movies, kept relighting movies about the same kinds of people. Uh, and I think, like anything in Hollywood, I think things are getting better and they're not as good as they should be. And it never should have been a problem in the first place. But but I'm hopeful that things are getting better. And I think you, you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians, which is the perfect example. You know, that was a movie that when they were shopping, that book was a huge hit. And when they were shopping it around, you know, there were people saying, oh, why can't the protagonist be a white woman? Which is crazy. Like, that's clearly, clearly not the solution to bringing that to the big screen. But when they did it authentically, you know, when they got that's a majority Asian cast. They they got a, you know people behind the you know producers and a director that really understood the material and they really they really did it right. And sure enough, you have this massive you know hundreds and hundreds of million dollar hit at a time when people are saying rom coms don't work anymore. Like clearly that's not true. A good rom com definitely works. And I don't know if you agree with me on that, Scott, but I quite like watching a romantic comedy on the big screen as well. I mean, I know that Netflix, you know, of course they kind of mastered a little bit that there's a huge market for romantic comedies. But sometimes I think they churn out so much with, with, with kind of very samey scripts. So I quite like when there's a big event like Crazy Rich Asians. I think there is a market. I think there are people that will go to the cinema still to watch uh, a romantic comedy. What do you think? Is it still a hard sell to take those films to the big screen today? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's... Um... 
Hollywood clearly has realized that there's still money to be made in a good romantic comedy. And I think what they're doing now is they're saying, okay, if we want to get people to go to a movie theater, it's never going to make a billion dollars like a Marvel movie would. Mm. But if we can kind of hybridize it with another genre to make it a little more of an event, then then maybe that's enough reason for people to say, I want to see it on a big screen. Crazy Rich Asians, obviously, part of it is the opulence, the the wealth that these people have is so crazy that you want to see all of those beautiful mansions and all that fashion and everything on a big screen. But this year you also had Marry Me with J-Lo. That's basically a J-Lo concert film. It's just also a romantic comedy, but a lot of it is just her performing on stage. Or look at The Lost City, the Sandra Bullock movie that came out this year. Which did so well, right? It was a huge hit. And it's, again, it's a romantic comedy, but it's also Indiana Jones, you know? Like people say, oh, there's action in that one. I want to go see that on the big screen. So I think that that seems at least to me to be the winning formula right now. I'd be curious if something like When Harry Met Sally would be as big a hit on a big screen now because no one's really tried it in a while. You mentioned J. Lo's Marry Me, actually. I've, I've seen it. I wouldn't say, you know, it's her best yet, but she's kind of... Well, I don't like the expression guilty pleasure, but I, I don't know. I think there's a certain charisma about her. She's being a little bit of a romantic comedy queen in recent in the last decade or so, I think, right? Oh, absolutely. And I don't love all of her rom-coms. Sadly, I have to admit, I was a little disappointed by Mary Me. Me too, Mary. actually. Me too. Me too. <laughs> but uh, but all that said, I, I love J-Lo as a rom-com star because, I mean, she, she can do anything, you know, especially mm. after her Super Bowl performance and stuff. She could do any kind of movie she wanted. She could go on a tour. She could do a fashion thing. And she's talked about this. She just loves romantic comedies. Like, like she really does. She goes out of her way to make them. She wants to star in them. Nobody's asking her to do it necessarily. And when she was coming up in the industry, she was told, like, you're too tough, which is, of course, coded racism. Like, like they wanted white women to star in rom-coms. And her first rom-com roles were roles that, like, Hilary Swank turned down, Sandra Bullock turned down. And she really, she really pushed to be in the genre because she loved them so much. And I think... I think even in her bad rom-coms, you can tell her passion is there and it makes them at least watchable, even if they're not great movies. That's so true. You can definitely see the passion in there. Uh, Scott, for the book as well, tell us about some of the other people that you spoke that perhaps were almost like your dream interviews. I mean, we've mentioned Judy Greer there, but uh, anyone else? Because you spoke to a lot of people, not just the big stars, but even the people behind the films as well. Yeah. And in some ways that was, I mean, I couldn't be more grateful for everyone who talked to me and there were so many lovely interviews for the book. Uh, But some of the really fun ones for me, as much as it was, as much as it was great to talk to some of the big names that people would recognize to go, to go behind the camera, whereas people who had never talked to anyone about these stories and were so excited to once they realized that someone cared about these movies, you know, to, I talked to the hairdresser on There's Something About Mary, you know, who was there that day when they filmed that iconic, you know, with the scene with the spiked hair that I won't yeah. talk about too much on the radio. But but for her to tell me the story of her and Cameron Diaz sitting in that trailer and saying, we can't do this. It's it's too much. It's too gross. It's going to ruin your career. We have to tell them we can't shoot this and have that to have the story of this whole debate that then resulted in this iconic moment when when it came out the way that it did. It's stories like that were just really, really fascinating to uncover. Oh, and I love There's Something About Mary as well. That's, that's it was a really funny film, actually. We need Cameron Diaz back, I would say. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'd love, I'd love to get her back. She, it seems like she really enjoys just making her natural wine and hanging out. And I guess I can't blame her. That sounds pretty fun. And what can we look forward for the upcoming uh, romantic comedy? Is there anything that, you, that you're looking or something that you've seen recently that would apply to the genre? Yeah, I would definitely highlight Fire Island, which, which as you mentioned, literally just mm. came out. Yeah, the Joel Kim Booster romantic comedy set on Fire Island, loosely based on Pride and Prejudice, but about gay men. It's a lot of fun, uh, really, really kind of funny and clever and just well executed. 
Have you seen the way they're drinking? They're clearly using us for free liquor. Will, promise me you'll try to have a good time. Do not let these people think that they are better than us, because at the end of <clears throat> Never mind. Hey, guys like that are ruining this island. Play harsh time. The other one in that vein that I'm looking forward to is Bros, the Billy Eichner rom-com coming out, which is the first major studio rom-com with a majority gay cast ever. So that's that's pretty amazing. And the other thing that's really interesting is in addition to, we talked about Sandra Bullock and J-Lo kind of returning to the genre this year, Meg Ryan and Julia Roberts also have rom-coms coming out. So it's kind of like we're getting this wave of the people who really are associated with the genre in the 80s and 90s coming back to do more. So My dream, Julia Roberts back to rom-coms. Yeah, it's amazing, right? It's I, I never thought it was going to happen again. I really thought the people who all of those stars had said, I, I kind of did my piece and I'm done. And Hollywood doesn't tend to greenlight movies with, you know, rom-coms tend to be about people in their 20s. But but here we go. We've got a whole second wave coming. It warms my heart because I think everyone loves romantic comedy in one way or another. Even films, I don't know if you saw that, that I think the book club is there will be a sequel to it. Is, is yep. that a romantic comedy-ish? Probably. I think that's right on the line. And, and you're uh, asking the line, yeah. Question. Yeah, because that's that's something I really had to come up with for the book. You know, so often when I was when I was working it up, someone would tell me like, oh, my favorite rom-com is Miss Congeniality or my favorite rom-com is The Notebook. And in, a, in those cases, I'd have to go, I'm not sure that's a romantic comedy. <laughs> so, so my rules are basically it has to be a movie that makes you laugh more than it makes you cry. And Basically, if you look at a movie and you say, if I removed the love story from this movie, would there still be a movie here? Or would there just be no plot at all? And I think that's what makes it a rom-com. So, so Miss Congeniality, for example, if you don't have her love story, it's still a story about an FBI agent going uncovered a beauty pageant. There's still a whole movie there. But if when Harry met Sally, if you say there's no love story, then there's nothing at all. There, it, there's not a movie. It's three minutes long. Thank you very much, Scott. And his book from Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy, is out now. Finally on the show, C41 are both an independent magazine and a Milan and Amsterdam-based production company. While the agency side has been busy working on creative campaigns for the likes of Nike, Ray-Ban and Floss, the magazine has evolved and found new readers. Monaco's Marcos Hippie was in Milan at Saloni del Mobile Fair, and that's where he spoke to Barbara Giel and Leone Balduzzi. They explained how the agency ended up launching a print product. Basically, we came from like uh, the passion of the, of the print. I always adored, uh, I started uh, working in the communication through a magazine, uh, a cinema and a music magazine in the like early 90s so what was like uh, a jump in the past for me and uh, why print this is a good question for us uh, the paper was born after the digital and um, we are biannual so we strongly believe uh, that the print uh, can be like uh, a collection piece in the hands of our directors, uh, graphic designers. Uh, we speak to people uh, that works uh, in the visual market, you know what I mean? That's why we are focused on, always on the researching of photographers, filmmakers, uh, and of course writers, uh, but not because the writing is not important, but uh, we throw the images, you know? And uh, that's why print also. 
So how would you introduce the magazine to people who may not be aware of it? What is C41 magazine all about? Okay, uh, we can describe as uh, our uh, claim uh, with... Um, an ordinary life makes an extraordinary story. Yeah. This is our claim and we based all our communication on that. Yeah, and our first um, issue uh, was about uh, that. So we, we tried to find an uh, extraordinary story and we think that uh, the magazine is the way to tell them. What kind of stories are we talking about? I'm wondering over the years, over the last six years, what kind of stories have you covered? What are some of the favorite things you've done with the magazine? I mean, um, we started from the Generation Z and now we are growing with our target. You know what I mean? So basically, at the beginning, we were focused on the stories coming from the street. Okay, uh, no matter if uh, which kind of story is it, because and this is uh, like uh, a kind of hybridity. I don't know if uh, it's correct uh, that uh, makes a C41 unique, because we can talk about everyone's. The important is that we love the story that uh, and the meaning of a story. Okay, so basically. Now we are growing with our target, and I'm happy about that because if you see from the first issue to the last one, the 12, we really uh, change like the, um, the lens of our story, especially in terms of uh, uh, visual and in terms of characters. Can you tell me about ideas, you know, what kind of ideas have been flying around in your meeting room and, and what have been some nice examples of what you've done recently? Yeah. So, first of all, we start from the cover story. And, uh, for example, one of, the, of my favorite cover story uh, of C41, it was, I think, for the second issue. And uh, it was the um, time of uh, the US election uh, between uh, Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton. So we asked to an artist, a Japanese artist, uh, Kensuke Koike, to um, thinking about uh, a piece of art uh, made of uh, two images, uh, one of uh, Trump and one of Hillary Clinton. And then we, mm, uh, we start a kind of challenge, uh, challenging online, and uh, we wait till the election, and then we decided to print uh, the cover with Trump which was, uh, you know, uh, a kind of uh, unpopular <laughs> for, uh, for, a, for a certain point of view, but very, very, very strong. Yes, because at the same time uh, we say, okay, if we don't like someone, not necessarily we, we have to don't speak to, you know. But basically I want to, say, I want to add the things, because when we have the meeting room uh, and uh, because we are content creators, because we came from the film and from the real photography from the shooting, you know what I mean? We always start thinking at, and the question is uh, what we would love to shoot or who we would love to shoot. Donald Trump is, for example, <laughs> for example, or Berlusconi. But well. anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, for, the, for the last issue, for example, if I can like uh, answer to this question too, uh, we had uh, like uh, a wonderful contact with uh, one of the um, actress of uh, the Euphoria TV show, and she contacted us, and uh, so we were like, "What? What?" She got in touch with you. Yeah, yeah. Because she wanted to be on the magazine. Yeah. And very proactive. Yeah. 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 <laughs> very, very, very proactive, and we said, "Wow, uh, this girl, uh, it's an amazing talent to shoot." 
As always, start researching about her history and uh, we shoot in Los Angeles and now we have the issue 13 with her in the cover. Yeah. Wow. Tell me how, how your work with this magazine is feeding into your creative work in the agency side. Allow me to start uh, with uh, two of the most important clients uh, we engaged uh, through the magazine and, and not through the creative uh, sales, let me say. One is Floss, and uh, I mean, this week uh, we can't talk, uh, I mean, about, we, can't, we have to mention it because uh, uh, they are celebrating uh, the 60th anniversary of the brand through the edition, the special edition of the famous Arco from Achille Castiglioni. And uh, basically we pitch to them the editorial part of C41, not the agency. And, uh, and the owner was excited to start an experience uh, with a magazine and through the magazine have the possibility to work with the content creators and producers. Okay, so the, the dreams becomes reality in, uh, in the same agency because uh, you deliver from the creativity to the output. And, uh, and the other one is Fornasetti, which Barbara is following, uh, for example. Yeah, I mean, there are some clients that come to us uh, as a creative agency through the magazine. I mean, they like our style, they like the photographer that we released. And because we have uh, this kind of um, research, they want uh, our research to be part uh, of their content uh, and communication um, uh, standards. So I think that uh, it's more the magazine that uh, tells uh, about uh, our, our agency. So, for example, when Floss came to us, we were uh, we were very, very young. It was, uh, we, we, we just released uh, one uh, issue of C41 and they were very, very brave from my point of view because, uh, I mean, nobody knew, uh, knew us. Uh, but uh, they really liked uh, our uh, uh, research and that's why they decided to, uh, to give us uh, the strategy of their communication. And finally, what kind of plans do you have? For, for the near future, for, say, the rest of 2022? This is uh, an amazing question because I always like to talk about future and I hope that we will have a great future. Basically, we are start working on the issue 13 and we are uh, start working on amazing new clients because we open an office in Amsterdam and another office in Paris and uh, we will try to bring uh, the C41 brand abroad uh, Italy. Thank you very much, Marcus, and the C41 team. For more on Salone, tune in to this week's episode of Monaco on Design. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. And meanwhile, you can always listen to the show again at monaco.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also subscribe to Monaco Magazine on our website. And before we go, a little song for you. In fact, this song is dedicated to Nora and her partner Blake before their big day. All I can say is that they have good taste. This is the Talking Heads. This must be the place. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. 
Until next time, it's goodbye from me.